Washington Capitals are the 2018 Stanley Cup champions. It's not a dream. It's not a desert mirage. It's Lord Stanley, and he is coming to Washington. Welcome back to Papers and I'm your host, Greg Young, and uh, today we have a special, super exciting guest, uh, someone who I wanted to have on for the podcast for a really long time because he runs a super interesting website uh, that is always one of my first go-to whenever I see the capital sign anybody, and that's uh, Mike, uh, Micah Blake McCurdy. So, uh, Micah, how are you doing today? I'm well, thanks, Greg. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. So, um, and also just to, before we even get started here, people should go to hockey viz and do the Patreon there. It's great. That is by far the easiest $5 a month I spend. So everyone should go do that. Like, so stop what you're doing. Stop listening to this podcast and go do that first. So, uh, but Micah, um, I think before we start talking about the capitals, uh, cause this is a Washington capitals podcast, um, Taylor Hall just signed in Buffalo a interesting one year by eight million contract uh, with a no trade clause, if I'm not mistaken. So I guess first off, just that's kind of off the table. And I don't know if any one of us expected that Taylor Hall was going to be in Buffalo. So kind of what was your initial reaction to that deal? I I mean, confusion is the first reaction. But then yeah. I was confused about Hall. I was confused about Hall already. Before yeah. before he signed that deal, and and his his results in the last several years are really unusual. The he's been you know one of those players that everyone agrees on that everyone who watches him can see is excellent, and and there's never been any kind of blowback from analytics people about it. In fact, if anything, the he's been an analytics darling as well mm-hmm. as being a you know and, and there are a handful of players like this where you know everyone just agrees that they're great. Like an Artemi Panarin or something. Sure, or like a, a Patrice Bergeron or a, yeah. you know, there's a handful of other cases where, you know, they're clearly excellent hockey players. Everybody can tell. It comes out in every way you look at it. You know, every now and again, you, you'll hear, you know, guys who are like hyped up and you think, well, actually, you look tighter and they're not really everything that they're cracked up to be like Drew Daddy and that kind of, you know, there's a handful of players like that. But there's all sorts of players, and Taylor Hall is one of them, where everybody agrees that they're excellent, except something has happened to him in the last few years. And and his most recent year, taking New Jersey and Arizona combined, was in some aspects really dreadful, especially dreadful defensively, like he never really was mm-hmm. earlier on in his career. Um, it's very unusual. The and and his shooting impacts are also not just down, but just hugely down. Like sure. snake bitten to a level I can barely understand. And so the obvious explanation is the, sort of easy to reach to is that. He was more hurt than we thought before he had to have surgery last year. The you know he's publicly complained about how long he was dealing with symptoms with it. The you know they had surgery before he even knew for sure what he was having surgery for. Discovered fragments in his knee. The recovery is longer than he wants. Obviously, even though he's back in play, you know, it's easy to say, well, that's what's going on. And but then you know you never know with injury, and he's already 28. The and you never know how those rehabs go, because, of course, now he's rehabbing on the other side of the age curve at the front. And so on the one hand, given all of that, the one year deal makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. The, I mean, obviously, a million dollars is nothing to sneeze at. The, you know, even if he's coming off of an MVP season, you know, in recent memory. The, and, 
And so Buffalo is an unusual choice, but obviously you have to think that he'd play primarily with Eichel. The Probably those guys are going to score a ton. Mm-hmm. The If ever you wanted to rehabilitate your image in the league, you know, that would be a great place to do it. And, you know, if you're sure next year whenever he starts healthy and 100%, you know, even if the team is probably still going to be bad with with the moves that they've made, Hall obviously helps. Well, if you think he's going to be recovered and recovered, which is not just recovered from his injury, back to his old self a couple of years ago, you know, that there's a an obviously optimistic path there where he scores a ton of goals with Eichel. The no trade clause means he doesn't have to speculate about anything in season. He can just play one full season and then go into next year doing this all again, only not from an uncertain platform, but from a certain platform of look at me, I'm rejuvenated, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. That's the optimistic case. I'm not completely convinced it's going to work that way, but, but I don't, I mean, who can know? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I think if there is, if they end up putting um, Hall and Eichel on the same line, we're going to need some kind of like equivalent to red zone for the NHL for just whenever that line is out on the yeah, ice. Just click over. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So uh, I guess Buffalo will be interesting. Um, but one other interesting team, uh, I'm going to give myself a C-plus on that transition, is the Washington Capitals. <laughs> um, so I, I've been asking everyone this, and I'm curious about your take on this, because the, the Capitals window is something that I think is kind of an open debate among fans. And I'm probably more, just to be transparent here, on the side that we're kind of Maybe closer to the, not just closer to the end than the beginning, but if we're already like starting to see the door close maybe on this curve. So I don't know, kind of where are you at on, do you see the Capitals still being a potential championship contender? Or is this just one of those where too many players are kind of on the wrong side of 30 here? Well, I mean, a lot of players are on the wrong side of 30. But, I, you know, too many, I'm not sure. The, the Ovechkin in particular... You know, does not show as many of the signs of slowing down as you would expect for somebody who plays like he plays. And, and you know, he's starting to give me that sort of uncomfortable Yager-esque kind of, you know, like maybe... Maybe he'll do it until he's 40 kind of feel. Yeah, or maybe he'll go until like, you know, one catastrophic injury is just the end of it. But up sure. until, you know, the, the game before, he'll still be putting in three and you'll be worrying about four. Like, mm-hmm. you know, is that kind of... The, you know, I, I don't think we're going to see this slow, graceful decline that that you see from some some aging curves. Sure. And so then the question is, it becomes really binary. The the rest, the you know, there's a lot of young players on the Caps who are uh, a fair bit better than I think than is realized. You know, when you have a team like that with where you know Ovechkin obviously is no longer at his prime. That when you have like a guy like that where you focus team success around him, you know, the narrative about the Capitals is always so Ovechkin-centric. And mm-hmm. when you when you do that, that can mask the rise of younger players. And so, the you know, and sometimes sometimes you get away with it in the sense that you can keep guys around, like Verona looks extremely strong still. Mm-hmm. The, and other times, you know, important guys get, get missed, like Schmidt going to um, Vegas would have been really useful to keep around, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And so so the like if you can I mean the perfect idea is that you you have the young players come in and take the spots from the old players, you know, in perfect sync. It's not so easy to do. Yeah. But but one of the ways that I think the Capitals have managed to extend 
the window the, as long as they did is that they've been able to rely on some of those younger players. I And so I think probably, you know, their days of being like cup favorites are probably well behind them. But in terms of being able, you know, being within touching distance of being able to go on a deep playoff run, it seems still quite possible to me. Yeah, and you look at a team like Dallas, for instance, who made it within two games of winning the Stanley Cup final, and I think that that could be one of those stories maybe that if the right thing breaks and everything like that, and even if you look at kind of the Caps run when they did, you would say that definitely was not their best roster that won the Stanley Cup. No, and that's, I mean, everybody everybody working in data circles, I think, understands, and most people outside of data circles too, understand that you can't, you know, just bull your way to a cup. You can't just have better players and then just you know, win all the games. The Every single winning team has a fair chunk of luck. Just by definition, the lucky teams are the ones who survive. Sure. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's interesting because I feel like this year with Tampa winning, this was one of the first years, I would say, kind of in recent memory, where you would say kind of maybe the most dominant team actually was able to kind of win the cup in the end. Yeah, I, I hyped up Dallas a lot. I, I felt like their their true chances were quite a bit higher than what a lot of people said, you know, I didn't see it as this David Goliath, you know, luck versus talent. I thought that Dallas had a lot of talent of, of a very different type. But on the other hand, you know, when you when you look at it from the Tampa perspective, they, you know, they weren't, they barely even lost the games they lost. Like they really didn't. <laughs> it took they, like even when they were, and everything, yeah, to even beat them. Like, sure, huge amount, not just overtime, but huge amounts of overtime. Like sure. the, the tenacity there, in terms of the score sheet specifically, was really something else. And and they didn't, you know, they weren't like flawless or anything, but they didn't have any serious holes. No. And one of the things, one of the things I noticed also is when I was looking into all these little recaps, you know, every series, every every round, I did it, whatever recaps. And every time you looked at, oh, you know, Kudobin was really good for Dallas in the in the final. And then you look at Vasilevsky and he's just a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And the Stars defense, you know, everybody talks about all oh, the Stars are so defensive and they were excellent defensively. And then you look at the Tampa defense and it's just a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And and then you look at the scoring from all the, you know, Boston had great scoring. A number of other teams had fantastic scoring. And then Tampa, just that little bit better. Yeah. And so, you know, when you when you have those kinds of, you know, and they had their third pair defenders playing much better than usual and picking up deals that maybe they don't won't live up to the like that's that's what you get when when you win a cup is you have all of your players playing well and then also even your not so great players doing their very best you know when you have all of those pieces together then there's really nothing nothing you can drive more than like a win or two through let alone four uh, yeah, I was. I always thought it was striking. Uh, I was watching those games, and I was kind of thinking, well, even Zach Bogosian is playing pretty well for them. And it was just kind of just they had all these little things that kind of just happened at the same time to really, uh, really kind of make make their run there. So we're ten minutes in, and I have not talked about Henrik Lundqvist to the Capitals, and I feel like I'm doing Caps fans a disservice. Um, <laughs> so I guess I, I'm going to frame it this way: the question, which is. So the Capitals are going from this year, from the past year, having Braden Holpe and Ilya Samsonov as kind of the 1A, 1B, to probably having their 1A be Ilya Samsonov and their 1B being Henrik Lundqvist. Although, I guess who really knows exactly how that's going to play out? So, I don't know. If you're a Capitals fan, how should you think about that change? Would you say it's an upgrade? Do you think it's just going to be different? Kind of what, what's your thinking there behind that swap? I, I actually don't see it as being substantially different in terms of, of results. The, I, I think the certainty is a little bit less. Um, you know, Holtby, 
it depends a fair bit on what you think about Hulk, because you know that's what you're that's what you're moving on from. Mm-hmm. And so so his last year, no one disputes it was rough. And so if you if you take the opinion that age has finally come for him and will take its icy talons, you know, and so on and so forth, then you know, then obviously you had to have some kind of change, and probably this is better. Although you know the the nervousness there is that Lundqvist is obviously much much older. Sure. And so the so if that's the if that's the opinion that you take, then you know then maybe you've made a, a fairly substantial upgrade, but you're on extremely thin ice because of aging curves. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, the if you think that what Samsonov is going to do is broadly similar to what it's funny these three goalies on totally different trajectories totally different stages of their careers have all come to what looks to me to be a very similar place of actual performance yeah lundquist is coming down from a big high holtby had an extremely consistent recent stretch not nearly as consistent as lundquist but you know four or five years of, of extremely strong play followed by one real stinker year and samsonov has one or basically one full-ish year of a little bit better than average mm-hmm. and all of which comes out to be roughly the same projection for all of those which is a little bit better than average yeah and so i don't i don't see on the one hand that should feel like an improvement the over what you got last year specifically but in terms of is it an improvement for the actual like total net quality taken over some larger time frame i don't know it's and of course you know an age does come for everyone eventually and it will come for Lundqvist. The, and you can see it already, you know, he's not, he's not doing Quite what he same. did. Yeah. No, you know, eight years ago, then he was like, at that moment, best in the world. The, you know, you're not getting best in the world anymore. But, but there's no particular reason to look at Lundqvist and say, oh, he's bad now. In fact, he's never had a sub-average season in his entire career. So, you know, there's, I, I wouldn't say, you know, oh, you know, everything is fine in the Capitals net. But, but I also wouldn't say, oh, you know, Lundqvist, he's a hero. And, I think that's real simplistic, and I see a little bit of that going around. Yeah. Well, it, it, it'll be interesting because kind of the the other moves that the Capitals made were surprisingly defensive-focused, uh, which I think was kind of interesting because you pulled a lot of, you know, if you pull a lot of Capitals writers like me and like some of the beat writers, I think there was some expectation that they were going to be going for depth forwards, kind of guys on the third and fourth line, but that was not the direction that they went at all. Uh, instead, uh, signing Schultz to a, uh, I believe it was like a two by four-ish million kind of contract. So what, what do you think Schultz brings to the Capitals? Because I know that you were kind of critical of that signing. So kind of what do you think was their thinking behind it? I that honestly is the one that really confuses me. All the other yeah. moves, I I understand, I I get it. The even even Paul Ledoux, who just signed, you know, that looks like the kind of guy who can be a little bit better than 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 a call up on your third line. You know, that's on your third, on your third above average like seventh that. defenseman kind of guy. Yeah, and you know, and it's nice to have that because then you Absolutely. win a couple. Like that's worth a couple games instead of losing those games. But but Schultz is a is just a mystery to me. The he was a whipping boy in Edmonton for good reason because he was dreadful his entire time there. The the Penguins somehow managed to turn him around, um, although a lot of that may be sort of a little bit tricky to say. He played quite a bit with Jack Johnson, and and one of the things that happens if you insist on on adjusting your evaluations of players um, for teammate quality, which I feel like you have to do if you're going yeah. to be on it, you know, 
if you do that, then people who play with known horrible players come out looking a little bit better, maybe a little bit artificially, because you can only get you can only get outshot so much. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> and so it's Although possible. Although Jack Johnson that, tests the bounds of that sometimes. It seems well, there's there's a few <laughs> players. There's a handful of players who really just wonder, you know, how do you how can you watch that guy get hosed in his own zone again and again and again? Without the, deciding the, the Cody Glass players of the world, you would say. Yeah, there's, I mean, mercifully, you know, the nerds are winning. Mercifully, there aren't as many of these players as there were even a few years ago, but it still boggles the mind. Whereas Schultz, I really don't, I don't see the rationale. I don't think he brings a great deal. I'm not even sure he's going to put up that many points, let alone push any kind of offense creation or any kind of shot suppression on the yeah. defensive side. I also don't know if he fits particularly well. Maybe there's a spot for him on the Cavs power play. I don't see it. Not obviously. Um, and I certainly wouldn't use him to kill penalties. The I like a lot of the moves that the Cavs have made this offseason, and I think that's the, the real stinker of the lot. Yeah, so I guess I'm kind of curious then about... I'm going to use this next kind of category of capitals acquisitions as like the the miscellaneous defenseman category because uh, you have uh, Trevor Van Riemsdyk and uh, I guess it was Paul Ledoux is his name or uh, yeah you you would That's know right. it better than that yeah so I guess what do you like I mean does Trevor Van Riemsdyk have a you know kind of specific role and kind of what did you think of those series of moves that the Caps made Justin Schultz aside so Van Riemsdyk specifically. I think definitely fills a particular niche. The so he's his, from what I can see, his profile is is a real shutdown type. Mm-hmm. The um, does a fairly serious dent in his own team's offense as well as the other team's offense. The maybe maybe to a point where you'd want to prefer to play him like heavily prefer to play him while you're leading, not while you're trailing. Sure. The, and so if you like the thing about players like that, like, and there are players who are, you know, really strongly to sort of towards one side like that. And there are up-tempo players too, which, you know, everybody loves to hate on the, except when they love them because they score a lot of points, but then they allow a lot of goals. Mm-hmm. The, and so if you have a team where, you know, you're going to get a fair few leads, you know, a team that's not in the bottom third of the league, let's say you're going to have stuff worth defending fairly often, then those players can be really useful because you don't need extra scoring. You don't need anything to happen. You need them to eat minutes and not all concede. The, and so if you have a team which is, which is sort of in the middle chunk of the, of the league, then those players can be really useful. And for the Capitals who are in that chunk, I think he fulfills a real need there. And you know, you'll see those warts and there'll be those times when you think to yourself, boy, we haven't scored a goal with him on the ice in eight games now. And and that will be, you know, there you go through cold slums and that will annoy people and he'll attract some some suspicion there. Sure. But on the other hand, being able to to grind out wins is still really valuable and I think he'll do a little bit of that for you. Yeah. So I guess I kind of kind of going off of the Trevor Van Rienstyke theme, it seems like I guess, I don't know how you want to typecast Justin Schultz in terms of whether that's a shot suppression kind of move or just, a, I don't know what the Caps are doing kind of move. But I mean, I don't think, as far as I know, the Caps have added like one forward that they've paid over a million dollars. And so it seems like kind of the focus was on the defense and shot suppression. So kind of given what we saw from the Capitals last year, do you think that kind of strategy makes some kind of sense? Or would you have, you know, it talking about how you would have improved the Capitals, would you have maybe gone in a different direction? No, I, I don't mind the strategy at all. I think Brendan Dillon also fits that 
that mm-hmm. pattern. You know, he's a he also fits the a, a real good shutdown profile, although he's not so great with special teams. Sure. The and so so as an approach, I'm not sure I look at their science and say, aha, I see a, a shot suppression strategy here, especially because of Schultz. Um, but the but the players they signed who do seem to have value to me, that's the value that they have. Yeah. You know, I I so which means you have to trust that the offense can, you know, that they didn't do anything in this offseason, I don't think, that substantially helps their offense. Perhaps they and it didn't seem clear to me that that was a real need, to be honest. You know, the the whole team pretty much top to bottom is stacked with plus shooters. The is one of the handful of teams in the league that can say that where, you know, starting with Ovechkin and on down through the, you know, five or six guys, you know, you have, have people who can convert shots considerably above league average. Sure. And so you don't, you know, volume always helps, but you don't, you know, I'm going to have my analytics and credentials revoked because I'm saying <laughs> Maybe that, the Cavs you know, actually volume. can outperform their shot metrics <laughs> and stuff like well, that. Well, there are. Like there are legitimately good shooters in the league and Washington has a bunch of them. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, it's a little bit risky to say, well, you know, we don't, we don't need to add any scoring. We trust our young guys can, can grow to match the decline in the old players. And that's not the most safe bet, but it also doesn't seem wrong to me. So, but it definitely, as far as strategy goes, it certainly seems to me as though they, like it's possible they've they've talked themselves into Schultz and they think he's going to bring a lot of offense where where I just disagree, mm-hmm. but but even outside of that I don't think there's anybody you point to and say well you know that's a, a non-trivial offense we can expect from him or him or him or him maybe Daniel Sprong actually which is something earlier in the off season yeah you'll make uh, you'll make sure. Adam Manis from our site happy there he's been Mr Daniel <laughs> Sprong which I, I, you you look into it he actually might be more of a useful player than I think a lot of people think yeah, well it's hard to, for me to say what what a lot of people think about Daniel Sprung because opinions that I see are all over the map about him. Yeah, <laughs> and so fair. I wouldn't, in fact, I actually haven't seen as much data on him as I would like the, I would, I would love to see him get a little bit more time and maybe he will. The, I guess that will, we'll just have to see how the season actually plays out in terms of, of where he goes. Yeah. Where so I guess go, right. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm curious. Um, so I guess I, the, the final thing, and we're, then we're going to take a quick break. Um, I want to ask you about Peter Laviolette because he's, it seems like, you know, even if you don't want to typecast like all of these moves as shot suppression, that that might be something that Peter Laviolette brings to the table a little bit as a head coach. So I guess kind of what did you think of the Caps hire of Laviolette and do you see it as a clear upgrade over a Todd Reardon? Uh, I did not see it as a particularly clear upgrade. It's possible, it's possible that he brings a small improvement to the defense. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there does seem to be a kind of new coach bounce where, where coaches, when they're brought in, regardless of how good they are, seem to bring out improvements in their team, especially mid season, the sort of the, the kind of the goalie pull of the front office. But, but what I've seen, and I've struggled about this and I've got yelled at a lot. I've been working in the last couple of years at trying to quantify coaching impacts Mm-hmm. And what I've seen from La Violette is less of an improvement in defense and more of a hurting his own team's offense. And so there's a, a fairly systematic pattern, um, especially through his Nashville years, of players with solid shot generation um, impacts, especially five on five shot generation, plummeting by reasonably hefty amounts, depending on how you look at it. 
sure. as they get worked into Laviolette's system without the corresponding defensive improvements that you would hope for from that. And and so I worry that perhaps there's a fool like um there's a particular way to be fooled where you look at the lack of offense and say, well, the defense must be good. Yeah. And and while they're obviously connected, they're much less connected, I think, than people realize. And and I worry that that the Capitals might have fallen into a little bit of that trap of that kind of thinking. Yeah. Where where they might manage to hurt their offense without actually getting the defensive benefits that they want. Because I'm not convinced at all that Laviolet actually brings them. Yeah, well, and then I guess I'm going to follow up with that with a, because I think you'll, you'll ask that to some Cavs fans and they'll say, well, Barry Trotz had the same thing in Nashville. And then he, look at the, he didn't have elite forwards. And then when he came to DC, yeah, all of a sudden he got the elite talent and then they were scoring and defending well. But it seems like you can maybe differentiate Trotz from a Laviolette. So do you think you can? And if so, kind of how? Well, I, I mean, so I, I try to approach this problem quantitatively, the same way that I approach all of my problems. And so sure. it doesn't make for doesn't make for tremendous radio to say, well, you know, <laughs> I threw a mathematical model at the problem. And but that's the but part of why I do it is that I think it's more disciplined where where I can I can try to specify data in a way that makes it clear to me, at least, that I'm not missing anything. You know, so I'm looking at the players as they're coming in. I'm looking at the players as they go out and not just sort of focusing on a handful of players who say, well, that guy, sure. you know, his goal totals went down. And well, that could be any number of things. Mm-hmm. And so so trying to take an approach like that, where you can assume that the coaches are having some sort of system effect. And and my, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm getting somewhere with, with quantitative evaluation of coaches, but it's still just a little scrap of what coaches are doing. Like I'm not getting a total eyeball on on a complete coaching impact, just on, just at five on five and just at certain sort of systems aspects. Like if certain guys should be playing more, but they aren't, Mm -hmm. that's a coach's mistake. And I won't be able to detect that. I just don't, just don't have the tools for that. But what I can see from, from five on five shot impacts, especially, you know, which as I say, is not the full sum of what a coach can do. Mm -hmm. I, I'm seeing a lot more strength, from trots and now that he's gone from team to team to team you know where i have data from him in nashville the same in washington and now from on long island the there's a quite a consistent impact more modest i think than some of his biggest boosters love to point out but but a strong impact helping his offense and helping his defense relative to the quality of players that he's got and the systems as you mentioned the systems have been quite different like in nashville in his day and still now the defender talent was much stronger than the forward talent. And in Washington, it was the other way around. Sure. So, and, and what, you know, the better players on the D core in Washington were the offensive players, not the defensive players, which yeah. makes it even, you know, even exacerbating that effect. Sure. And, which was the same in Nashville too, where their good forwards were the defensive forwards. And so the, you know, you, you have very, very different teams. And so that was a nice test case actually, you know, even even in amongst all of the other terms swimming around, I could see, aha, I'm going to look at and see what happens with Trotz as he goes from a completely different roster, stylistically different roster. And I was surprised and kind of gratified to see his coaching impact look similar, the same modest boost to offense, the, the same modest boost to defense. And Reardon, of course, there's not nearly as much data on him. Um, the just 
not as many, you know, compared to somebody like Trotz or like even like La Violette. The and but what there is for La Violette does not bring me any particular any particular joy, especially not in terms of offense. And I worry a little bit actually that if the Caps offense, like if they take a 10 or 15 percent hit, um, I, I suspect that that may be La Violette's fault. And instead, I think the narratives would be, you know, Ovechkin is washed up now. Sure. And that would be that would be real unfortunate, I think. It would. Although there's always mean, the possibility someday he will be washed up. And maybe yeah. It'll, it, I mean, it, and it'll obviously be a little bit tough to kind of, you know, separate all those out. And uh, I mean, obviously, the, the bummer here, too, is just as a just as a fan of hockey is that I think we all really want to see Ovechkin, even if he doesn't quite catch Gretzky, make a pretty serious run. At it. And it's things like, you know, whether the Caps are able to kind of keep their offense supplying shots. And if he's able to keep shooting at that elite rate, and you wonder if maybe a coach like Laviolette's going to harm that at the margins. Well, one of the things, one of the few reasons to not worry about that is that if if there's a team effect, if Laviolette does hurt the team offense, like I worry that he might, mm-hmm. that probably won't actually hurt Ovechkin's numbers specifically, um, because if it means the team is losing, then that will Ovechkin will get those minutes. Sure. You know, until until he starts falling over on the bench, they every coach in Washington has the good sense to put him out. Well, you know when they're down by one or two and they need a goal. Yeah. The, and so, so the one person who may actually benefit from that perversely is Ovechkin personally. And I, you know, and obviously I agree with you that, that I really want to see him take a serious run at that record too. That would be really fun. No. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think that's uh, even, I, I've even talked to Penguins fans and I think even a couple of them have said, uh, I think there's just kind of Ovechkin's hitting that point of uh, hockey player career where there's just universal admiration for what he's been able to do. And uh, I, it's just the idea that someone like him could make a run at Gretzky kind of in this era of basically having like a three, like a three inch window where you could put the puck to score consistently yeah. is kind of remarkable. I agree. Yeah, yeah. All right, so we're going to take a quick break, and then on the other side, uh, we're Mike and I are going to dive into the rest of the UFA market, so uh, stay tuned. Welcome back to Japers Drink Radio. I'm still here joined by uh, Micah, and uh, Micah, I have a question about the UFA moves, and before we go into that, I kind of want to ask an overall, I'm curious about what you think is an effective mindset for teams going into the UFA market? Because I think you see a lot of teams approach it differently of maybe a, you see some teams have a, we're going to do these two things in the UFA market. And I think maybe you have teams that think, oh, like, you know, we're just going to look for bargains as they come. So do you think there's a right way to think about UFAs? And do you think there are certain teams that maybe do a bit better job of kind of compartmentalizing what their goals are and what they aren't? Yeah, I, I think so. I think you can be proactive in UFA and make sure that you get what you need, um, which is, in my mind, actually the high risk strategy. Sure. Because then you have to, then you have to, you have to be sure about your own ability to identify your needs. You have to be sure about your own ability to identify who fills those needs, and then you have to find a fit for that thing. You need, like, you know, if you need a particular kind of guy, and there just aren't any in a particular free agent crop, then, you know, your ability to identify your needs has gone for nothing. Sure. There's nothing you can do about that. And then you have to be willing to quote unquote overpay. And, you know, over like, this is sort of a loaded word, right? Oh, so-and-so this team overpaid for him. Well, the, the structure of free agency means that that is, you know, the it's effect happens. at that time yeah. market rate. <laughs> yeah. you know? And so it's overpayment only when you compare to other people who signed under different contract terms under t- totally different circumstances. And in fact, even 
this is sort of a pet peeve of mine, but all these like economics terms that come from free market assumptions are all kind of nonsense for hockey. It's not a free market. To the extent it is a free market, it's not very liquid. The, there are tons and tons of restrictions about who is allowed to make deals with whom and at what times and for what terms. You know, it's collectively bargained, as we know. And But we still persist in this idea that, you know, oh, so-and-so, they, over, they paid him $2 million more than they, quote, should have. You know, as if, but if you were yeah. in their shoes, you would have known that the choices were paying that price or going without. And, yeah. and so on the one hand, you know, maybe... It's possible, and certainly some some quote unquote overpayments for free agents have been so bad that going without would have been the correct choice, the relative to the harm that they did to themselves by signing the contract that they did. That and that can go for players too. You know, you you can leave millions and millions of dollars on the table, and then you don't. But depending on the player situation, perhaps the alternative to signing that contract was going without. You know, maybe you have to hold out for a year. It's, you know, which can be extremely risky for players too. So that's the one mentality. And if you have the money and if you have the, the ability to actually identify your needs and to actually identify the players who fit them and then the organizational wherewithal to, to chase them, you know, to, to work the phones, to do the negotiations, to, to cross all those T's and dot those I's to make sure that it's all cap compliant, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and that's why it's a high risk strategy because any number of those things can go wrong even when you do them reasonably well. The, the potential for failure there is so high. There's, and so that's, in some sense, I think that's probably the better way to do it, but it requires so much discipline that right? you have to have the cap discipline ahead of time so that you have the cap space to do it. You have to be able to stomach a little bit of an, you know, one or two extra million dollars that you didn't really want to spend on this. The, but when you do it right, the you have the players that you need. They fit perfectly into where you need them. And then you, you can... You know, you can extend a window. If you're close to the top of the league, you want to be doing that extensively. Yeah. On the other hand, if you're the, the sort of totally dual strategy where you say, well, we're not going to go hard on anything, but there's always players who fall through the cracks. Many of them are good. I'm good at knowing which ones of those are good. I trust my evaluations of the league as a whole. I'm just going to take quality where I can get it, and then I'll make adjustments afterwards. Then, yeah. then every year, there are people who sign and people go, huh, didn't think you could get so-and-so for so-and-so such and such money. And and opportunism can win the day. So Montreal, for instance, yeah. I had not thought to myself, oh, they were having a great free agency. In fact, if anything, I was scratching my head a little bit that they gave Josh Anderson so much term and so much money. I think we all kind of were. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's not that there's anything wrong with Josh Anderson, but, sure. but it's just a lot of term and a lot of money considering yeah. what he brings. But then, just before we hopped on the call today, that he got four times just over $4 million, um, the Habs got Tyler Toffoli for that kind of money. And he's he's worth, I don't know, not quite double that, but a lot more than that. Yeah. And and so, like, just lurking in the weeds and taking advantage of, of his exit from Vancouver, where I suspect he probably wanted to stay, but they couldn't afford him, the, or didn't have the organizational wherewithal to, to see to it that they kept him, you know, that that kind of weight in the weeds strategy worked out really well for them. Yeah. And I mean, you look at a team like Anaheim, for instance, getting, uh, I don't, I don't know many people having them tied to Sh- Kevin Shattenkirk, but that's a, that's another contract, at least to me, that seems like it was a uh, pretty good value for what they got. No, it seems quite sharp to me too. And, yeah. and it did come out of nowhere. Like you said, I don't think anybody saw it coming until they got the text messages saying that it was done. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, so I guess another kind of question in terms of thinking about the various moves teams made is, and I say this with a Capitals angle in mind here, but I, I don't think it's just, you know, central to the Capitals, is how seriously do you take what went on in the bubble? Because, I mean, to me, I think that beyond just discounting that, I think you see teams a lot of the times fall into the playoff small sample size trap. And I'm kind of curious what you think about the rationale behind making decisions based on a few set of games and in particular kind of compounding that by it being a weird situation. So you say that with the Caps and obviously they struggled in the bubble and then I think that pretty much sealed Todd Reardon's fate. So what do you kind of think about the process of making a decision based on that kind of sample? I, so on the one hand, I think, I think that the games like, I think they count. Like I don't, sure. I don't see it like as if there's some sort of asterisk around this season. You know, we're going to tell stories about this season, just like we're going to tell stories about 2020 to our children for till we die. Yeah. But in <laughs> Mostly 2025, negative stories, right? but uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but like I don't, you know, I I don't see that there's anything about these playoffs that may, you know, are illegitimate or anything. Sure. But but I always try to keep playoff decision making to a minimum. Is is a very, I mean, sports is there art of the artificial already it's extremely contrived the whole business and and the playoffs are somehow even more contrived like the rules are contrived the players play through injuries to a ludicrous extent the you know the luck that we were talking about before also dominates the results all of those things make me really nervous about saying ah well so and so i thought he was good but he looked rough in the playoffs so we're going to trade him i think you know teams generally regret that kind of kind of thinking you know you hear sort of meathead pundits say ah well so and so is good but is he good you know this is this is just advertising that you're fooled by small changes yes. sort of nothing nothing there the i don't think it's so silly if you say something like well we're kind of on the fence about this guy like i suspect this is probably the case with reardon who i think was kind of on the hot seat going into the playoffs a little bit you know, I don't, I don't mind if you say something like, well, we'll see how he does in the playoffs. And if he pulls a rabbit out of a hat, then maybe we'll keep him. And if it's sort of disappointing, then we'll give him, you know, and then you can, you're basically just flipping the coin. And, and if you're trying to, you know, if you're close to 50, 50 on a decision like that, anyway, I don't see playoffs seem like as sensible a thing as anything else to, mm-hmm. to make them with. But, but if you are radically changing your opinion about something because of what happened in the playoffs, you know, I think that's generally a mistake. And Tampa provides a perfect example of this, where they brought essentially the same players. Yeah. All of their important players came back, and they got zero playoff wins one year, and then 16 the next. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's a, a great example of what can happen to, you know, just what the playoffs are like. And so had they decided, oh, well, you know, we got humiliated by the Blue Jackets, the Blue Jackets, you know, and clutch your pearls and, and say, well, you know, we have to make drastic, drastic changes to the hockey club. That would have been really unfortunate for them. Yeah. And I think obviously the Capitals are kind of, if you look at the organizational history since 2008, I think they're kind of another good example of the harm of overreacting because I, I, you look at what they did after, you know, the Montreal series and firing Bruce Boudreau, then the consecutive head coaches they got after that were Dale Hunter and Adam Oates before hiring Barry Trotz. <laughs> and that arguably like, tank two years of Alex Ovechkin's core that maybe they didn't need to. Yeah. And, and, you know, some people will say that all's well, that ends well with that because they still, they still won the cup in the end, but sure. there was, you know, the caps are the, are as close as we've seen in recent times to you know, any kind of potential for dynastic, you know, them and the penguins, which is part of what made the, the rivalry with the penguins so fun for the time that it lasted. 
And, sure. But yeah, I, I, I like. I don't think anyone is prone to overreaction. Or sorry, anyone is immune to overreaction. Any anyone can look at high stakes, high leverage stuff and then make their own call. And mm-hmm. although it, it's easy to be, you know, it's easy to be critical, and of course I definitely am. The but like we're we're much more forgiving of athletes who make mistakes where we realize that that's just how it goes. You know, you don't you don't make the right play every time. The but somehow with executives we're much much more harsh. Yeah. Maybe fairly. They get you know they get more time to think about stuff. Athletes have to do stuff right, you know, while we're watching them and hitting them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that's, uh, you know, obviously it's executives. You got to kind of make the hard calls when, you know, I think it's an athlete. I think most people accept that 99% of the time they're just trying to like do their best and sometimes just weird. I think we've gotten in a much better place in hockey, I would say, over the last five to six years of kind of rejecting this idea that there's perennial underperformers in the playoffs and kind of just saying, you know, stuff happens in the playoffs sometimes, at least if you're a player. And I don't think it's a, I don't think it's anyone necessarily choking so much as, and so much as just instances of, you know, of instances where maybe just something didn't happen because that's hockey and the best players just don't always win in the sport. Yeah, I agree. And, and I think it's possible that in a few more years, we might get to a place where the sport and the discourse around it is sufficiently healthy. And like I said earlier, I think all of these things are improving. We might get to a place where we can start to discuss a little bit more sensibly, maybe with some like sports science data or some sports psychology data, you know, which kinds of players do flourish better in the playoffs without, without just doing, you know, extremely hacky back calculation. This guy, you know, lost twice in the playoffs and yeah. that ruined one, two times a year. Like, once we can get past the the sort of I'm going to tell you what happened, only I'm going to explain it to you as if it couldn't possibly have happened any other way. The very narrative centric kind of style of everything. Yeah, and and that that narratives I mean of course we love them. We all love narratives. The they're sort of built into the human psyche if you like. Absolutely. But, but it can fun be in a lot really, of ways. Yeah. Sure. But it can be really lazy and, and when the stories aren't true, then then I we can do a fair bit of harm sort of collectively to ourselves with it. But like I said a second ago, I, I think this is getting better. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, it'll, it'll be kind of interesting to see. And I know that there's new frontiers of the analytics movement in terms of just kind of seeing how to quantify various impacts that maybe we weren't, uh, you know, thinking about. And I guess one thing, I, I, and I know this wasn't maybe in the topic we had discussed, but I, I, one thing I'm kind of intrigued by as kind of a follow-up to this is player tracking. And it's something that I know that we started seeing in limited instances in the NBCSN and uh, Sportsnet coverage. Kind of what are you, Is do you have any hopes or expectations for what player tracking is going to look like? And kind of what are, what, are, what is your thinking behind that? So I'm uh, extremely negative or pessimistic about just how much we're going to get. Sure. I, I, uh, and I'm not at all sure um, not at all sure about what I could even do with it, supposing I would get it. It's kind of like a dog chasing after a train. You know, what will you do with that if you catch it? Sure. And on the other hand, um, so a lot of my immediate expectations are a little more humdrum. You know, I'm expecting things like um, location data for shots will be correct all the time. And... <laughs> Yeah, you know, and we won't be, have weird moments where the first, what was it, like 10 games or whatever, just the locations were wrong. 
Yeah, right. Where they were, turns out they were using a rink map that was that was the wrong shape. Yeah, you know, that was <laughs> like that, that was those kinds of mistakes. I mean, of course, new mistakes will arrive, and I'm sure you know, I happen to know some of the people who are involved in, in the technology there, and I, I'm more optimistic than I was before I knew who was involved. <laughs> and so, you know, there's lots of good people who are working on those things. The, so I'm, I'm imagining, first of all, just, you know, a lot of the data cleaning issues that I work with are going to go away, where, you know, like I do some spot checking on data, and I see, oh, that was listed as a slap shot, even though it was actually from... The, you know, the absolute center of the slot, what could that possibly be? And you look at the tape and somebody took a slap shot from the point and it got tipped in the slot. Sure. And, and so everything is recorded perfectly, except it still says slap shot instead of 17. And, you know, and so I have to like fix that sort of stuff. And so I'm hoping that a lot of those sorts of things will be improved by tracking. Um, in terms of like broadcasters are going to have a big responsibility to, because they're the ones who are actually going to get a hold of data. But they're operating under such crazy time constraints where they have to like get data, look at it, get it to people who are going to feed it to fans, and it's got to be processed so many times. That's going to be in the early parts of like the first few years, even. I think it's going to be real stupid because yeah. we're not going to know. Like it's going to be really trivia, really hokey, really look at this guy. We're going to know how hard the slap shot was and stuff like that. Right, and in I don't think we can help that at first. That that's what it's. That's what we're going to get to start with. And, um, you know, what can you do? Yeah. The, but I think over time, it's going to get better and better as we, you know, as we learn how to contextualize, you know, even even really simple problems. In fact, I've been enjoying this as the public conversation has gone, has moved forward about tracking data. I've been enjoying watching people realize things that I had to realize painfully myself a few years ago. Like things like, oh, that guy was skating really fast. Was he skating faster than usual? Well, usual for what? Yeah. And and this is an extremely simple question, and it turns out when you dig your teeth into it, it's not simple at all. No. And, and and so like this is part of what part of what I really like about analytics, just as a thing, is that that you have to take all of these assumptions and and not just understand them, but but make them explicit. And say, oh, this is what I expect. Oh, so these are all slap shots. So slap shots come from the points, except for one timers, they mostly come from the circles. Except jam plays, they mostly come from the net sides. <laughs> You know, and then all of a sudden you're, you know, but you're like, okay, that's not the same. And now you're teasing apart all of these things. And every time you think, okay, now I've got it, you run your data, it doesn't work. And then you think, okay, why doesn't it work? And you dig into it, oh no, I was assuming this when I shouldn't have been. And and every time you do that, you you build out more of your intuition into into code, into what you write, into your journalism, into everything that you, into your output, whatever it might be. And yeah. that process, that I mean, it's, it feels bad, right? It's discipline. It's hard. But what you get at the end is something that's more rigorous, more thorough, and, and more frequently correct. And I'm, I think we'll collectively go through a bit of that process because there's going to be this flood of data. And people will look at it and say, ha, that's so stupid. And they don't realize <laughs> it. They don't realize it. But that, that moment of mockery begins a journey depending on how far they decide to take it, begins a conversation which leads to, if not understanding, then at least realization of of weakness, of not understanding, of not of realizing, oh, that's not like this, or oh, that's I didn't take this into account. And all of those processes bring self-understanding. Uh, and so I like them for that reason. 
Yeah, and I think that can be kind of maybe Twitter at its best is, I guess one of the the important things when you're you know, doing data, which I've also done in past careers, is sometimes you just even need to know what kind of questions to ask. And so kind of having those random thoughts can be really helpful in terms of just you know knowing, oh, maybe I'll put this in or maybe I need to account for this and it might not have been something that you would have thought before. Yeah, and, and we're going to get a lot of that. In fact, a lot more of it than, than any of us, I think, really want. It's going to have that, you know, like I was joking about the train earlier, it's going to have a certain fire hose quality Absolutely. Uh, early on where we're going to go, oh, man, what do we do with this? And, and people will, I think the only way to actually do it is people will into it and they'll make fools of themselves and and they'll the dogged ones will continue and we'll get something really good. Um, but I think it will take a, a certain chunk of time, you know. I've heard people say, oh, you know, the first year is going to be really bad. And in the back of my mind, I agree with them. And I think, well, maybe maybe three or five years. But you'll find smart people like yourself who ask the right questions and uh, will kind of, uh, you know, figure things out from there. So I guess one of the things, kind of the last question I really wanted to ask you is, uh, I had this whole list of questions and I think we just started talking about more interesting stuff anyways. But uh, <laughs> you've, um, that's always the way these interviews go and it's always fun. Um, so one of the things that you've done and I really enjoy is, uh, you focus on a lot of other sports, too, in terms of providing data visualizations. And I guess I'm kind of curious. So branching out to other sports, what are you seeing with maybe how how different sports are handling information that can inform how we think about hockey analytics and kind of the questions that we're asking? Well, so almost every sport that I that I like pay any attention to. And of course, weirdly, like I was always sort of a sports kid. Like I liked watching sports. The, you know, even if I didn't play very many or very many very well, the, so I was like, you know, my parents would find me watching college football, you know, when I was 13 and be like, Mike, you don't even watch football. And I'm like, no, they're going to, they're coming back. They're going to win. They're like, <laughs> the, way that, the way that, that like kids and teenagers are, where you just like grab a hold of something and latch onto it. But, Absolutely. But now, but I take a different interest now where where now for me, it's a professional interest. And so if I'm watching a basketball game, I'm thinking to myself, you know, I wonder how I wonder how basketball nerds break this down. I wonder how they you know oh, they must do it by possession. Oh, I wonder if they break out them into different types. I wonder what if they use these kinds of mathematical techniques or those kinds of data analytic techniques. And the and so when I when I read papers and so, in fact, I, I know more about some sports from analytics than I know as a fan. Yeah. You know, hockey is a little bit different because I came into it with some fan knowledge, you know, and obviously working in it just, I mean, it shows you how little you know about the sport constantly. And, yeah. you know, I, I would, I would kill a man to be able to sit down with, you know, a good hockey coach or a good hockey player or both. And, you know, and just sort of say, hold still, I have 30 questions for you the, and watch them kind of give me weird stares for however long. <laughs> but, but, but I'm used to, I'm used to discovering that most sports are ahead of where I consider myself to be in hockey and even in some cases, even ahead of the, the whole field. So like basketball is the example I used a second ago, you know, as a discipline, I feel like the basketball people are running rings around us Absolutely. and, and they've had, they've had better data. They've had better people. They've had better, the better approaches, more systematic approaches for the longest time. You know, baseball has been doing whatever they've been doing for so long. Yeah. And so that, <laughs> But for that, like 30 plus years or whatever, compared to hockey, where it's probably closer to 10. Yeah, right. And so there's there's so much, like, 
it's not that there's so much like that can be picked up. You know, I still sometimes read papers and think, oh, I'd love to. What if I could use that technique over here? The the sports are different enough from the one to the next that you do have to, you know, tailor things quite. And every now and again, you'll get like, oh, that's one good idea. You won't just be able to say, well, I'll just take this one approach. Sure. But but what's like, but you do see intuitions coming through in a way that's really helpful. And you know, I was having a, a conversation with um, with some people who were working in a betting services company, and they were they were explaining how you know, how susceptible they considered every sport to be to um, fans, to just how much do the fans in the stands change the outcomes you see on the field or on the pitch. And they had some theoretical ideas about how that might make sense across all sports. And, you know, and then you got to something where you could actually like, you could consider, and this is very much the earliest stages, which just got me thinking, you know, what if you could talk about sports analytics as a discipline for sports, not for a specific sport, you know, what kind of things can you say sensibly, especially because so many sports have so many commonalities and sure. soccer, hockey, basketball, all clearly fundamentally the same thing of pitch of a particular size and an object that has to be placed in the netting thing. Yeah. You know, that, that those patterns are so similar that, you know, can you, can you say something about them in a, in a totally, abstract way and that's sort of my mathematical tendencies coming up with my natural instinct is always towards abstraction yeah and so it's been in terms of specific like oh ha 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 you know a little insight that you grab and you run with there's been um surprisingly little but in terms of you know just because every sport has smart people who are, are you know the easy stuff they've already done but in terms of of finding refreshment, finding something, a new way of thinking, finding a way of breaking out of being stuck in a rut, then it's tremendously useful to talk to somebody else and say, oh, you're dealing with these problems. Oh, well, those problems were not such a big deal to me when I came up with my sports versions of those problems. Oh, and they say, oh, well, it was easy because of this. And anyway, you go down that road and now you're engaged in a great conversation about how your roadblocks don't seem like such a big deal and their roadblocks don't seem such, like such a big deal anymore. Yeah. And you can, you can kind of, the same way that you can just take a vacation, you can you can get a new perspective without feeling like you're just leaving what you were doing behind and that you're losing ground on it completely. Yeah. And in that vein, for people that are interested, uh, Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast, actually, during the boring parts of the pandemic when there were no sports on, they had this idea to just bring people on, analytics nerds from different uh, sports and just have people talk across discipline. And uh, if people are interested, those conversations are absolutely fascinating and I highly recommend them. I think they had, uh, for hockey, the Evolving Wild Twins on, and it was a really kind of interesting cross-discipline analysis. So uh, be sure to check that out too. Um, and uh, Micah, this was awesome. And thank you for indulging me in my geeky questions that maybe diverged a little bit from the stuff we were originally <laughs> going to talk about, but uh, it was awesome. Where can people uh, find your stuff? So the, the easiest way to find... Um, well, to find me is on Twitter, uh, where my handle is ineffective math. It's a joke about how I used to be a mathematician, but I could never get a full-time math job. And so I had to do, uh, it's all one word though, ineffective math. As long as you can spell the word ineffective, you'll be fine. Yeah. Um, you can also find um, my website, which is good for when I'm not on Twitter. And since we're going into the actual off season now, I'm hoping that will be a little bit more. I've been working crazy hours. Uh, the website is called hockeyviz.com, H-O-C-K-E-Y-V-I-Z.com. It's uh, it's half free and half pay, so that's the that's how I make my living. It's the bulk of my money now, 
and uh, which is extremely satisfying that hockey fans provide almost all of my uh, yearly revenue. Um, yeah. There's lots of it which is free, um, and there's lots of it which you can get if you subscribe, and you don't have to pay until November the 1st, the because uh, that's how I set it up. So don't feel like you're putting one over on me. I enjoy that. Um, and so naturally, I encourage people to do it because the money goes to me. Uh, but also, <laughs> there's there's a great deal of uh, there's a great deal of, of purely. You know, we've been talking a lot earlier on, especially about player evaluation, um, which is, you know, obviously the thing that that people are most interested in from a day to day point of view. But there's also a great deal of just, you know, this is what happened when this guy was on the ice, and this is what happened for this team, and this is how they took penalties, and this is how they started their shifts, and a lot of just purely descriptive stuff. For uh, sometimes I like to joke that the website is is uh, entirely writing prompts for bloggers. Yeah. You just, you know, if yeah. you don't have anything to do, you just go to the website, you just click on a bunch of graphs and you go, oh, that's weird. And then you figure it out and then you write it down. Yep. I, I can, I, I will vouch for that firsthand. You made uh, writing uh, articles about Jakob Rana and Dmitry Orlov way easier than it otherwise would have been. So I, uh, I personally am maybe a little biased, but I'm pretty grateful for that. Well, that's the, that's the name of the game as far as I'm concerned. But, uh, yeah. but as I say, the, I'm going to try to take a little bit of time off of hockey now that we're, you know, who knows when we're going to come back. But now that we're in the actual off season, I'm, I'm going to relax a little bit. Yeah, please do. Please do. And uh, if uh, you enjoyed this podcast, please uh, rate, stripe, subscribe and review all of those things uh, where you get this. And uh, you can find me at Greg Y underscore JR on Twitter. And you can find the uh, Japers Rink Radio handle at uh, Japers Rink Radio. I hear there's a great person who runs that who uh, will remain nameless as of now and totally is not me. Uh, so, uh, Micah, thank you so much for coming on. This was a blast.